Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Thank you very much. Good evening. Hi, thanks for being here, and uh, welcome to Pantisocracy. You know, people always ask me about that word still, and it is a real word. It's a society of equals. And today, in our Pantisocratic parlor, I have a, well, more guests than we've ever had before, actually. And they are all interesting people who are doing interesting things. And when we were thinking about the guests for today, one of the things we were thinking about was that sort of saying, be the change that you want to be in the world. And all of our guests today very much illustrate that. So first up, we have two women who are both in different ways using food to change things. First up, Isolt Ward. Isolt is an award-winning social entrepreneur and one of the two young women behind Food Cloud, which is an initiative that uh, moves unwanted food from supermarkets and channels it to people in need. So, welcome Isolt. And beside Isolt, we have um, Ellie Kisombe. And Ellie is a Malawian woman who's been living in Ireland for many years. And she is the force behind Our Table, which is using shared meals and food and cooking to break down barriers. So, thank you for being here today, Ellie. Next, I have two musicians who are also cousins, Gronya and David Hope over here on my side here. And they are using music uh, to powerful impact in children's hospitals and hospices. And um, yes, give them a warm round of applause. And then we have uh, Sean Dunn. Sean is a young Dublin playwright and actor whose recent play, Rapids, tells the story of people living with HIV and AIDS. Thank you, Sean. Side Sean over here is um, a woman to whom I owe a great debt of gratitude. She's a doctor and she's been a global pioneer of HIV and AIDS research and treatment. Come all the way from St. James's Hospital to be with us. It's Fiona Mulcahy. And finally, but by no means least, over here, a lovely guy. He's an actor, a singer. He's from Northern Ireland. Connell Kane, who has become an advocate, not only for the gay community, but sort of against bullying in general. So please welcome Connell. Now, before we get started, I am going to take the floor for what we call the panty monologues, because what else would we call them? <clears throat> you know, sometimes you make life happen, and sometimes life happens to you. Life happened to me suddenly and unexpectedly one Friday afternoon 21 years ago when my doctor told me I was HIV positive. And 21 years ago, before the amazing advances in the treatment of HIV that have been made since, it didn't so much feel like life had happened to me as life had dropped on top of me from a great height or life had driven a freight train right over me. And for a time, I felt battered and bruised by life, you know, cruelly singled out and abused by life. And when I could muster up the energy for it, I was pissed off with life and its petty, unfair cruelties. But anger can be exhausting, and I'm much too lazy for that. Um, so over time, I resigned myself to my new three-lettered life partner. And over the years, as treatments improved and we got to know each other, we found a way to rub along together quite comfortably. But though I was now resigned to it, I didn't really see anything positive in being positive. But that turned out to be not quite true either. I have been privileged to do some small work with Irish Aid, and part of that has involved visiting HIV projects supported by Irish Aid in countries with very few resources. Not long ago, I visited an HIV clinic for mothers and babies in Mozambique, on the outskirts of the capital city, Maputo. 
Conditions were basic. A few small, simple brick buildings, not much more than sheds, really, clustered loosely around a large, dusty, unpaved central yard. And every inch was filled with mothers and babies. Hundreds of them. A line of mothers shading their babies from the sun stretched from each small building and snaked out into the yard on sun-bleached benches and simple wooden stools till the stools ran out and they stood or squatted. There was chatting and cooing over babies, but it was quieter than you'd imagine. They had been here since early in the morning. Many had traveled long distances to get here, and they were stoically resigned to long hours queuing. And the funny thing is, I didn't need to ask them what they were queuing for, because I recognized each line immediately. Of course I did. I spent many hours in the very same queues. This line is to see a doctor, this one is for bloods, this one is to get weighed and your blood pressure, so this one must be for vaccinations, because this one is for your meds. At first glance, this sun-baked clinic looked nothing like the clinic that I go to here in Dublin, St. James's, with its tiles and lino and sliding hatches, and yet this one was also completely familiar, instantly recognizable. The same medications, the same instruments, the same questions, the same leaflets about viral loads and T-cells and flu vaccinations, the same vocabulary, the same glossary of medical terms and drug companies, and the same pathologically cheerful posters about liver function and bone density, and cue this way, and please remember your hospital number. There was a young woman sitting on the ground beside me, the bright-eyed baby in her lap, and as she glanced up and caught my eye, I couldn't have even guessed what her life was like, because I had no frame of reference to hang my guesses on. And presumably, she had no frame of reference for my life. But I did know this. I sat down beside her and said hello, and we had lots to talk about. More recently, I was in Vietnam with Irish Aid, and one day, in all my drag regalia, I stood on a stage in a park in Hanoi, telling a large crowd about Ireland. It was Hanoi Pride, and earlier that day, I had traveled through the chaotic city in the middle of a noisy and colorful parade of bicycles and tuk-tuks. And as I stood there in the heat telling my story, telling Ireland's story of hope and change to these brave, mostly young people in a park on the other side of the world, I smiled to myself. I smiled to myself because who would have thought 21 years ago that this big cartoon, this panty, this product of all the times life had dropped on top of me, would one day enable me to be the change that I wanted to see in the world. Fiona, I'm coming to you first, because um, I've been in your care, in a way, for the last 21 years, and so you've always been like a, you know, sort of a, a figure of respect for me. But in the same way that, you know, 21 years ago, if somebody told me that the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs would be trucking me around the world dressed as a giant lady, I, I would have laughed at you, because that's a ridiculous notion. Mm. So, you know, what the hell is a nice middle-class lady like you doing in the sex trade? <laughs> <laughs> it's always so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, really. So serendipity, I was looking for a different career in medicine. I started doing endoscopy. I ended up down in St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London and stayed with the next reg mine. I was saying where am I going to end up? There's no jobs and all the men are getting the jobs and the women aren't. That was how it was yeah. then. And she said, oh, you know, there's this new specialty. Why don't you have a look at it? And I thought, oh, I'm not so sure. It fit. Anyway, I went back that day from London back to Leeds where I was working and there was an ad on the notice board wanted senior reg in GU medicine, HIV. And I thought, God, it's a sign. So I, there I ended up 
purely mm. by accident, but it's been a great career. I've had a wonderful life in terms yeah. of like seeing disease that people felt they were going to die from yeah. to transform into something that is so positive and life expectancy is exactly the same yeah. if you're on treatment as somebody who is negative. Yeah. I'm old enough to remember when there was the ads on the TV and the tombstones and you know, people were literally terrified of it. And you... You were right in the thick of it. And it was also a time when people didn't even want to talk about it. Yeah, no, it was difficult. And I suppose I was really lucky that I ended up in St. James's Hospital because there was a group of colleagues that were, you know, very open. But it was um, in other hospitals, they were putting, you know, trays under doors. People were double gloving, gowning up. It was horrendous, you know, and Mm. your life expectancy then was 18 months to two years. And that was it, you know. But it was very difficult, very mm. changed to now. Because sometimes I mm. try to explain to people the changes in, in, in the time that I've been there, going to the clinic there. And what I'm always trying to do is to impress them that there was a time when people were dying all the time. And it was just part and parcel of your visit to the clinic and who was there and who wasn't there anymore. And, and the change has been so dramatic that now if somebody died from complications with AIDS now in the same changes... It would be devastating to everybody. Yeah, no, it is. And to be honest, the only people that we see now is those that haven't had a test, didn't know they were positive. And then we're trying to pick them up where their immune system is totally devastated. Yeah. And they're the sad cases that are so preventable if people yeah. only had a test early yeah. enough. You you know, know? From my perspective, I always think that it's that sort of fear around it that stops people going to get tested. And you know, sometimes I make some stupid joke about you know HIV or something on stage with me. And sometimes people... Uh, you know, are a little freaked out by it or something. But, but it's not something I've done casually, it's something I, I thought very carefully about. Because my problem was that people were afraid to talk about it and it became this huge thing. And, and I feel if you can laugh at something, it takes some of the power out of it or something. Totally. And, you know, when I started back in James's, like there was no condoms and people didn't talk about sex at all. I mean, it revolutionised how we gave sexual education in schools, how we discussed and were more, became a much more open society than we mm. had been before. So there was that whole era yeah. change. Now, Sean, of course, your last play you know, really references all of that stuff, like the last place, Rapids. And at the beginning, you actually show that TV ad that we had in the 80s where the tombstone is falling over and there are body bags. And now that literally terrified people away from having sex. And what age are you now, Sean? I'm 28. Like, I think it's, you know, it's hard for people in your generation to even understand how terrified we were of sex. So how, do, how did you come to use that and well I wanted to make a work about people living with HIV in Ireland because ex-boyfriends of mine were becoming diagnosed friends of mine were becoming diagnosed and I felt like there wasn't a lot of conversation about it in the mainstream so that was the kind of initial instinct behind Rapids there was like three plasma screens on the stage and they, f- they featured a lot of docu-footage and different images from over the years that people still kind of associate very heavily with the subject. And one of them was this iconic ad from the 80s where a tombstone falls and it's very scary and very grim. And um, we featured that because even if you didn't see that ad, the effects of it are still in our psyches and in our bodies. And people that are younger than me would be coming out of Rapids being like, oh my God, thank God I'm out of that show. Like it was like enough for the whole thing. And I'm like, really? Why? Like, And they were like, I don't know, but I just carry a lot of weight about HIV on me. And I think it's because things like that, even though people were responding to an emergency and they were trying to create a really effective campaign that would scare people into getting tested, unfortunately, it scared people 
in a really long lasting way. Mm. So I felt like it was important to just represent why things are so stigmatized, why there is such a silence. And it comes from things like those campaigns, I feel. And you use, you know, this sort of documentary style in your work. I mean, you, you interview people and then you translate their words or you, it's, it's verbatim? Yeah, it's kind of what I call like pastiche verbatim. So I interview people, I record it, I've got written notes as well. But then what I do is I kind of stylize that truth for the stage. Yeah. So I find my own kind of artistic form for it, which warrants it being in the theatre, basically. So obviously when you go see a regular documentary, if it's in the cinema or if it's on the television, it's quite literal. It's people talking to camera and it's their own words exactly. And ultimately I'm making a piece of art for performance. Mm, yeah. So there's a little bit of abstraction and mm. a little bit of process and that makes it specific for the theatre. And the other thing that still lingers about all of that is it's actually a good news story. You, you mentioned HIV or AIDS people and they still think this is going to be a horrible story. Do you feel a sort of a pressure, Fiona, to, to explain all that constantly to people? I think, as you're saying, you know, that there are groups that are totally stigmatised by it. And if they meet somebody who's positive, they're run a mile. There are others that don't, obviously. Mm. But now there is the new drugs PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it's not currently available as yet in Ireland. But basically, it will be that you could take a tablet once a day. And even if you are sexually active with somebody who is positive, that you Mm. will not pick up HIV as a result of that. So who would have thought that would have happened? You know, that 20 years ago was, as you say, inconceivable. And I suppose we're conscious we're in a very privileged society here in yes, Ireland. Yeah. You know, um, healthcare is very good. What we are stuck with in Europe is a horrendous issue in Eastern Europe in that it's illegal to be homosexually yeah. out there. There's plenty of money, but no drugs are administered. Their infrastructure is dreadful and their case numbers are climbing exponentially. It's a tragedy, really. The thing is, of course, you know, like I was joking, saying you're a nice middle-class lady, but of course you are. And in the beginning, is it just a doctor thing that every doctor has to do? Or do you, because of the, the, the field you're in, have to really just throw off all sort of Irishy judgments about sex and all this stuff in order to be able to talk to patients and communicate? You mean, um, am I judgmental at the back of my mind? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, we all are to some extent, but do you think you had to sort of fix that Irish Catholic, yeah, I was brought up like that. Um, I think medicine itself trains you to Mm. separate your own self from how you deal with patients. And if you can't do that, you're not a good doctor, I think. So I know there are lots of my peers that might be in the wrong profession, according <laughs> to me. But, uh, but I, I think we really have to be advocates for people to allow them to be whoever they are. So for me, yeah, it was a real eye-opener. I was like totally naive little Irish girl over in the UK. I was thinking, oh my God, I like the stories. I'd come home and say, another story. I'd never heard that before. But, I, you know, you become very educated very quickly. Yeah. Nothing would shock me now. Absolutely nothing. Ellie, I want to come to you here because... Um, one of the first things that I sort of knew about you a little bit was you were also in a documentary-style play on RTE Radio, which was about... It was about the woman who is coming to Ireland to seek asylum. Yeah. So the message which we wanted to send across was the message why people do leave their own homes to move over to a certain place where they don't have a knowledge of. Yeah. And why do they take those risks? Yeah. It's not like an overnight choice that somebody just wake up and think to move from their homes because I believe home is the best. Mm-hmm. But then when homes becomes the mouth of a shark, yeah. I think you can't deal with it anymore. So you just have to get somewhere. Yeah. And your hopes are... Wherever I'm going, I'm going to be appreciated and received really well. And then you also 
be there and find that life is also difficult. So, so it was drawing from your own experience. So tell us, what is your experience? How did you end up from Malawi to here? So in Malawi, it's, um, it has its problem of political unstable. Yeah. So we've experienced this from a generation to generation of our uh, politicians. So me as a young activist and some of my fellow students, we thought that we could take matters into our own hands, which you don't do that often in Africa because <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't take you to a very good ending. So anyway, I didn't have any choice. I've lost parents through this struggle. I've lost family members through that. So it was a time whereby live or die because yeah. I don't think if I was in Malawi, I would have been like talking to you at this time. So this is the incredible part about you. So you end up in Ireland. Mm -hmm. You're in direct provision. Mm -hmm. But rather than sort of sit there passively, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you decided, mm -hmm. I'm going to try and do something about this. So tell us a little bit about our table and, and what it's all about. Yeah, so um, when I got to Ireland and seek my asylum, I didn't exactly know what I was putting myself into. But anyway, at that time, I didn't even mind what's going to happen to me because I was looking for safety. Yeah. So first year was really hard. I went into uh, like a bad clinically depression and... My kids were not with me. My yep. family were not with me. There was a lot of things happening with my family, with myself. And it was really hard. And then I was like, so if I'm going to let myself die and then leave all these people, then what's going to happen to them? That means I'm killing everyone. So, you know, I just have to stand up and do something. So that's when I had to stand up and say, okay, what can I do? So as we understand, like, there's a lot of complications with direct provision. And unfortunately, the centre which I was put in, it's like away in Mayo, and it was just like far, far from the, you know, that's exactly I'm how it is. I'm Mayo, so now be careful. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so from there, we had a lot of people, like from Somari, Eritrea, who they didn't even have English at all. Mm. So I, had, I started helping this. Inmates, I'll call yeah. them inmates. Yeah, so, <laughs> like, okay, you know, you can do a bit of English and, you know, and then creating a little bit of gardens. And I, I just tried to find things that could move us to the next day. Yeah. And, like, I always believe that everything works out for good. You know, sometimes we can concentrate and focus on this is really bad. But if you can look, actually, after when time passed, you think, like, I think this was actually working to my favor because I was known every place where I was yes, going. Yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> And then I ended up in Dublin. So at that time, the Irish refugee council were, like, moving along the centers, just trying to talk to people. And then I met the CEO of Irish Refugee Council. So you know what? I always jump. I'm a chancer, so I always jump for <laughs> opportunities. So I was like telling this lady, you know what? I think people, they seem not to trust you guys. People, they were afraid to talk to anybody who comes like in a suit because mm -hmm. people were afraid of being deported. Yeah. Then the CEO at Irish Refugee Council at that time said, do you want to come and work with us? And I was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one of the things which I was doing was to bring out women from the centers and go and cook meals and in early 2015 I was really lucky that my boss was approached by a business lady she said you know I've just heard that asylum seekers are not allowed to cook so I wanted to do something so my boss was just like you know you are just dead right there is a woman who exactly wants to do what you do because one of the things about direct vision is that yeah. you're given food yes. and you take what you get yeah. and so people feel maybe disconnected from
from their own food. Exactly. And preparing meals. They can't prepare meals for their kids. or Exactly. So, like, I'm coming from a foodie background, right? <laughs> Not only foodie. My mama cooked. My mama sold food. You know, my mama fed community. And mm. being in direct provision, food is given to you. Like, you don't even have a choices over this food. You don't even know what's going to come on the menu. Food is very unhealthy, not even well cooked. You know, these are mass cooking, mm. you know, and you kind of like miss home. And not even only that, like food is a very good tool which connects people, yeah. right? There were a time whereby the campaign of direct provision of asylum seekers were not even sent well to the public because people were bored to hear these stories. So it was really hard. So you then took this idea yes, and exactly. you set up these sort of pop-up restaurants. Pop-up restaurants, yes. yes sure. And so people from direct provision would yeah. cook the meals exactly. and the food and regular people would come in and you could then exactly. meet and share. And, and that, of course, you know, ties into Isol there beside you because... Isolt also saw something in food, you know, to make a change. Explain your, your, about um, Food Cloud. Yeah, so it was about, about five years ago, I met Eva O'Brien, who's co-founder when we were in university, and it was really becoming aware of the fact that over 30% of all food that's grown and produced is actually wasted. And at the same time, we had a charity sector that was facing increased demand for its services, dramatic funding cuts. And you could see in one community that you had food businesses that were paying to throw away perfectly good food. Mm. And then non-profit organisations that were struggling to fundraise to buy food to support those who are most vulnerable in our communities. Mm. And we really wanted to create a solution that would bring the two together and enable businesses and nonprofits in communities to work together to solve each other's problems, really. Yeah. And at the same time, for charities, food can be so powerful. As Ellie said, it's not just about feeding hungry people. Yeah. They use food to really enhance their services. And an amazing organisation we work with is Daisy House. It's a women's refuge. And the CEO said to me that it was the most powerful programme they introduced into the women's refuge over the last few years because the food arrives twice a week and the thing about surplus food as you'll have experienced it's random yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you don't really know what you're getting yeah. it's kind of a yeah. ready steady yeah. cook experience yeah. um, so you have uh, these women who I suppose had come from traumatic backgrounds would have been very nervous about socialising so often the house would be very quiet yeah. they would stay in their rooms they wouldn't socialise with each other but then twice a week this random <laughs> delivery of food came and often the food might be food that some women weren't familiar with, some women were very familiar yep. with. And you'd have this situation where they were going through the box of food, saying, what's this, sharing this, coming up with ideas to cook. And she said, since they've introduced her four years ago, twice a week, she walks into a house that's full of laughter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's that social yeah, connection exactly. that food creates. It has creates. grown, I mean, extraordinarily large, and you're doing over a million meals a week or something. But taking into consideration that I'm a ditzy drag queen, um, <laughs> can you explain just really simply how it technically works? Yeah, so um, literally you're a staff member working in a supermarket, and there's food that you know you won't be able to sell because it's coming close to its expiry date, mm -hmm. but it's still perfectly good to eat. So 
if you take certain products like fruit and vegetables, they have a best before mark on them, which is literally a quality mark. And as soon as they reach their best before mark, uh, supermarkets dispose of them. But they could still be perfectly fine to consume after that date. So every store has access to our platform through an app or their PC. And they very simply put in the information about the food. They'll put in a time for collection. The location is there. And then a local charity will just receive a notification saying this food is available from this store at this time. Are you available to collect? The charity simply texts back yes or no. If they're available, then the store knows and they collect it directly from the store. So really trying to make it as easy as possible for both the supermarket and for the local charity so that they can seamlessly work together. And and, and the the supermarkets, they actually pay. Yeah, so we're a non-profit, but we're also um, a social enterprise. So the supermarkets were actually paying a waste disposal company to come by and collect this food. So we are able to charge a fee for every store that signs up and that helps Again. us then cover our operating costs. It's, I mean, it's remarkable and yeah. And what age were you guys when you, when you did that? I think it was like 21, 22 around there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. um, I'm going to come back to the food in a little later but um, I, I want to come to you, David and Grania, the Hope Cousins. Now you, um, it's not food that you're dealing with, it's music. And in a way it connects with Fionier because it's, it's in a medical setting, a hospital and that. So explain to us what it's all about. I suppose the idea came to me as a graduate student when I was in America. And um, part of our degree, we had to find a community setting to perform in. And the one that was allocated to us was the hospital next door to the university. And I just thought, this is such a good idea. You have a ready-made audience. It doesn't cost anything. It gives us an opportunity as a student to perform for an audience. Yeah. And I said, whenever I come back to Ireland, I'm going to use that idea. Someday I'll put it in my back pocket yeah. because the opportunity's there. And you're an orchestra musician. You're a cellist, a classically trained, whatever. Is it? Yeah, I'm cellist primarily. And um, I do a little singing, as I say, in the children's hospital now in the bathroom. They're the only two places. <laughs> but, uh, you know, your voice is the one thing that connects. And we find with this, it's a conversation often when we go into children's hospitals or any hospital, a conversation leads to a memory of a piece to a dementia patient who maybe can't remember their family's names but can sing a song perfectly from beginning to end, you know. So it's the power of music to move within this setting, I suppose. It's it's very clinical as yeah. it should be. And you started off in children's hospitals? Or, yes, yeah. yes. It's And it, the large part of our programme now would be in children's hospitals. We're in eight children's hospitals. And, and, so, and so how does it work? I mean, basically, you turn up with your cello and a, a couple of guys on violins <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> yeah, I, we tend to go around in pairs. Um, okay. So there's five of us now trained in this specific approach. We're not music therapists. Mm-hmm. I primarily aim is really to share music. So um, sometimes it's a, a piece of music on a corridor. We don't need to announce we're musicians. I think they can tell from our instruments. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sometimes a head will come out a window and that's kind of an opening. Uh, somebody might ask, do you know this piece? We bring a lot of little instruments with us with the children because our idea is really to give the music over to them so that they lead us in an orchestra. Yeah. I remember there was one little chap once in... Um, Temple Street and he had a Spongebob square pants, you know, ukulele. And all he knew was hallelujah, the first two lines of it. And we went around a full ward for 20 minutes accompanying him and he was like, come on, come on. You know, but that was, that's our role in that setting. Yeah. It's not, as we say, leave your ego at the door. And, and, and you're not going in and just playing Mozart to the kids, you're playing whatever... Well, Mozart did write a variation fancy. on Twinkle Twinkle. So we yeah. <laughs> as I told the consultant one day, play a little bit of Mozart for me. So we did a variation on Twinkle Twinkle and he turned on his heels. So that was the end of that. But yeah, we do a little bit, we go in in pairs. So I have folk uh, yep. musicians, traditional musicians and classical musicians. So I've 
flautist, cellist, some violinists, you know, guitarists, songwriters. Mm. So between two of us, we have a quite a variety of repertoire. Yeah. And sometimes for the nurse, it's for everybody when we go yeah. in the nurses. And, and I mean, one of the things I read uh, you saying is that, that in a way, it's, it's your real music joy. I mean, you know, that the concert halls is all great and all, but... Absolutely. I've been very privileged to tour the world and still do amazing concerts with amazing musicians. But I have some lasting memories from the effect that bringing in a twinkle twinkle to a family is a privilege, really, to bring it in at such yeah. a challenging time. It means so much to them the tears, the, the thanks afterwards. And if I can do that with a simple song, yeah. that's what I love about it. It's really been able to connect to people and helping them, even for a moment of the day. If it's five minutes, a director of nursing said to me, the music can take people for a walk in their head for five minutes yeah. when they can't get outside for that walk. Of course, the thing about being in hospital is it's, it's boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's boring. So anything to sort of brighten up the day. Or yeah, and in one way, it's, um, we're a choice, especially for children, where they don't really get a lot of choices. Yeah. They have to have their medicine, they have to have their meals, but when we go in, it's an option, always given it as an option, and um, to see the empowerment when a child might go, no, no, I don't want it, and the parents go, no, no, yes, yes, you want the cellist, you know? And we, we say, no problem at all, we listen to the child, we walk down, we're just down the corridor now, and I guarantee you five minutes later, they're down after us. But yeah. for that moment, we give them the power to say, and we yeah. listen to them, because we can. And somewhere along the way, you roped in your cousin. I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he might tell the story of how I roped him in. He tells it better than I do. Because you're not a, a, an orchestra musician. God, no. I wouldn't be letting the door now. No, I, I um, started playing music when I was in transition year. And I suppose I kind of started doing some youth work in my, my old secondary school, mentoring kids and things like that. And where was this? In Shannon, County Clare, yeah. And I'd also kind of gotten to the point where I, I realised the benefits to my own mental health of songwriting and things like that. So mm. it was kind of uh, an organic thing. And Grania being a second or third cousin, we haven't quite figured out which one yet, but uh, we knew there was mus- <laughs> music at various... Are you uh, sure you're related to the are, we are, we are, yeah. <laughs> Look at the hair. The color, you know. But um, yeah, we, 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 we never crossed paths musically. Obviously, we'd met at various family functions and things like that. And, and as is often the way in Ireland in particular, it was a, a funeral that we met at at one point. And I was sitting down with Grania and her sister and... Um, as is my my way, I was being irreverent at a funeral, which is, you know, not in a rude or a disrespectful way, but, you know, oh, a typically <laughs> Irish way, as it were. And Grania somehow um, garnered that the fact that I was being like this was a good thing that he might work in a children's hospital doing this. Mm. So she, you know, asked me, would I come and do the training course? And I said, yeah, sure, look, at it. I'm doing nothing else. And I went along and, yeah, I haven't looked back. It's It's been, like Grania said, it's not an exaggeration. It's it's It has been some of the, the big highlights in my life as a musician. And now, um, uh, David, you're going to do a song for us. Yes. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Because it has its own background. Yeah, as I said, I kind of, the act of writing, I learned how good it was for myself. And unfortunately, with regards to kind of mental health, suicide is, is a big part of that. But uh, I lost a very close friend to that. And as I said, that was very intense. And it, it, the song is called Someone Else's Mind and how we can't see what's going on, you know. And it's, it's pretty self-explanatory, the song, but that's kind of the, the background of it. So. Well, thank you very much. Um, Dave will get ready for us there. And, um Dead man walking, nobody here can tell Mine can make a hell out of heaven Or heaven out of hell Can be a storm behind the eyes Smiles worn as a disguise and you can't tell 
They have so many words to brand That no one can truly ever understand Yet it's as common here as rain So much confusion, hurt and shame Still it carries on And it just goes to show You just never know what you will find Going on in someone else's mind I sat beside this kid in school As close as you to me there on that stool He was dark, misunderstood His mind was bright, his heart was good He was just a kid But he couldn't see the woods from the trees Started listening to the voices on the breeze They said his room was painted black Shut the door, never came back Out into this world And it just goes to show You just never know what you will find Someone else's mind Well it's been ten years now Since we put mirth in the ground And a death like this has stared me in the face So many before and since have fallen To that voice inside and calling them away and You know the numbers, they don't lie This was a war and which they died There'd be thousands out marching in the streets And this man I just saw life Seemed to have it all, kids and wife The kind of man you want to be But it's the things you just don't see Sometimes tell another tale So I'm just last Friday night Shook his hand, got in my car and hit the lights As I drove away Didn't think I'd be here today Watching him be lowered down And it just goes to show You can just never know what you will find Going on in someone else's mind Going on in someone else's mind Thank you. Um, Conniff, now you're from Lurgan. Lurgan, yes. And, uh, well, your story is different again. Tell us your background. You're, you're an actor, but uh, you're also a singer and performer and all that. Uh, but you, in a way, have come around to um, well, being an advocate about bullying and an advocate for the gay community. And I, I saw you recently were given an award by Northern Ireland's gay community. Tell us a little bit how you got into all of that and where it comes from. Well, I kind of, as a kid growing up in Lurgan, 
being gay, it wasn't particularly easy. However, I was always quite proud of who I was. Mm. At the non-uniform day at school, I would have been there in my Spice Girls t-shirt and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I went to an old always boys one. <laughs> yeah, there was always one. And then at like 17, I just wanted to go to London. To, mm. It was kind of like a Billy Elliot story. I wanted to go to theatre college and moving over there, started college at 18, had mm. a career in musical theatre and in telly. But... Uh, I moved into singing and songwriting because I felt there was a certain element of homophobia within the acting world. For example, agents would say to me, you're too gay, you need to butch up. Or, oh, you can't say that in social media. If a casting director says that, you know, you, you mm. might get known as the gay actor. And so even though I wanted to be in this industry that I thought was so accepting because I was a homosexual, mm-hmm. actually ended up being quite homophobic. And, and, and when you were in, in school, you know, were you bullied and... Yes, mm. God, yes. And I, I was taken out of school and put into another school. But I had a great family. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, as a kid, I always had two very strong friends. But I think that really ignited my, you know, hunger to get to London, to mm-hmm. be part of a huge city, to escape the, you know, the tiny town that yep. I was from. And you can imagine, you know, LGBT rights in Northern Ireland at the minute have a massive cap on them anyway, mm. you know, but in the 90s, it was, you know, it was really hard. And I'm sure it was even harder before that. But I know from my personal experience, I just wanted to get out of where I lived as soon as I could. Uh, certainly a lot of gay people feel that. Oh, I need to get out and find Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I, sometimes I think the gays, we kind of think that's our unique story but it's not really I mean you know every young person don't they want to get out and sort of see a a bigger world kind of I remember in careers class at school you know when the teacher went around the room was like what do you want to be, Con Lit? And I was like, I want to be a singer and dancer. <laughs> like a little ready. I was putting myself in another box. Yeah. You know, so um, I was always the odd one out. But, you know, I proudly walked around with my tap shoes. And <laughs> um, Sean, you are from Dublin, inner city and all that. And I think often lazily people think that um, inner city working class communities are ones that, you know, gay kids will have real trouble in. But I've never really found that to be true. Would you agree with that? When I was growing up, I would say I had a hard time, and actually, just hearing t- hearing you speak there, I, I've only kind of come to terms with the fact, really, that when I was younger, I was bullied about being gay, like, and it's something that I definitely kind of steered away from even admitting, you yeah. know, when I'd be like, oh, it's lads, it's banter, it's this, it's that, but like, no, I think in where I was from, like, I'm right from the heart of the inner city, like Dublin One, like, I don't, you don't get any more towny than me, you know, <laughs> but as I've grown older and as, like, perceptions and times have changed, like, I'm very, very welcome in my community, yeah. you know, people are very proud of who I am, the work that I do, the fact that I'm gay, my parents are, my family are, but I, th- I just think sometimes it's just about familiarity and people... Yeah. Growing up with you and mm-hmm. relaxing themselves around these things because back then, you know, God, I, I'm, I feel like I'm putting years on myself now saying that, but <laughs> back then, uh, like early 2000s, <laughs> um, <laughs> people like you didn't have a lot of gay friends, you know, yeah. they didn't, and now well, everyone's. This place of change has been dramatic. Yeah, 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 which is really, really great, and it's brilliant. It's a privilege to be on this end of it, I think. I'm sure you'd probably uh, agree. Yes, no, d- definitely. I hate saying it, but from Northern Ireland, I remember when the Irish referendum went through an equal marriage, for example, mm. I had. So many Facebook messages and calls. Congratulations, this is amazing. And I'm like, it is amazing, but it doesn't affect me. I'm, yeah. I still can't get married in my hometown. Yeah. You know? So that's, I think, actually, the Irish referendum was my turning point mm. to actually really start using my voice. Because that day was so frustrating for me because I was in London and everyone was so happy for everyone in Ireland. Mm. And then, but people, friends I had in the Republic of Ireland thought, oh, but you can get married because you're from the UK. And I'm like, well, actually, I'm from Northern Ireland. And then yeah. it's so confusing. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, 
<laughs> and then, you know, I'm like a lost identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Ellie, you have two teenage children. They're 17? Yes. And they're with you now. Yes, they are. Were they part of the reason that, that drove you to enact change in a way? Yeah, exactly. You know, like, I've gone through a lot of tragedy. Mm. I lost my dad. I lost my uncle, who these were, like, the true father figures in our family. So, you know, if you're not careful, you can become angry. Yeah. And sometimes you have to make a choice where are you going to direct your anger, yeah. right? So if you're not careful, you can direct your anger into a situation where you can destroy everything. So like for me, I, I think I drove my anger into trying to do also something positive. So yeah. I'm not going to change. Well, one, of the, one of the really great <laughs> lines I heard from you um, yeah. is uh, you sort of said that you need Ireland. Yes, but Ireland also needs you. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a great attitude. And I think it's yeah. also true, you know, that everybody's a resource. Yeah. And, you know, and to let it rot away in direct provision is, is a waste. It's, it's, it's a waste. You know, like Panty, I dream every day and I'm a dreamer and I can act on my dream. Yeah. You know, so like being stuck for eight years in direct provision, it's actually not good for Ireland, you know, yeah. because even while I'm in this situation, I'm trying to be who I am by trying to do all these things, which are very resourceful. I want safety. I want to be somewhere where I can live well without worried of my kids mm-hmm. being kidnapped, even me myself being kidnapped or even being tortured or raped or anything. Yeah. So I'm in Ireland that actually gives me that safety. Yeah. So I need Ireland, but Ireland needs me. No. So <laughs> we need one another. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I think about the anger is interesting because... Um, it's very easy to be angry about things, exactly. and then there comes a point where you just have to make a decision how you're going to channel it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Isla, with you, what was it, or what did you see, or where was it that you thought, you know, you, you saw this waste, in a sense? Was there a moment? Yeah, I think, like, I've always been very passionate about food growing up. Yeah. We've always been something that we celebrated, families come together around it, and I just had no idea that food waste was a problem, because... We just didn't waste food at home. So it was actually when I met even that she told me about the amount of food that was going to waste and literally just started by calling businesses and saying, you know, do you have food that you throw away that's still perfectly good? And if you do, why aren't you doing anything with it? And just kind of finding out about the problem. And it was when the first ever donation we facilitated was a farmer's market. They were the easiest to get on board because these people produced the food. They were selling the food. They were so close to it. They Mm. literally would have looked for every single option besides throwing it out before Mm. they throw it out. So they were very eager to come on board and we found a very local charity. And this was before we had any technology. And where was this? I was in Glasnevin. So it was the Honest Goodness Market in Glasnevin. So... Literally using phone calls and introductions, we introduced the two and I remember going by to see the first ever donation being given. So we actually went to the farmer's market and then drove to the charity to see all of the food going over. And then uh, we ended up with a flat tire. So actually ended up in front of the house in the rain for about four hours afterwards. So we actually kind of accidentally ended up coming in to see the food being cooked and everyone Mm. getting to enjoy it and share it. And what was amazing is you'd see like gourmet sausages, artisan breads all of this food that came from a farmer's market that 
nobody wanted to see going to waste and that this charity actually even with their food budget couldn't afford like we have charities that are cooking meals for 30 cent a day and we have had uh, an amazing charity working with a Sophia housing and they had game pie and tapenade focaccia for 30 cent <laughs> a head <laughs> like, you know just this incredible food and I think that is definitely one of the things that gets me most excited about it but yeah yeah. So, so where, where is it in operation now? Yeah, so we are now in 3,000 supermarkets across the UK and Ireland who are all connected to a network of 7,000 charities. And we're averaging at about 550 tonnes of food a month, which you can translate into roughly 1.2 million meals equivalent or up to 1.5 million euro in value. And then last year as well, in partnership with another non-profit, BIA, we actually launched three warehouses. So the technology solution can use work with the small random quantities of food you see in a supermarket and quickly connect it to a charity. Yeah. But we also knew that there was an incredible amount of food going to waste further up the food supply chain. So from farms, from manufacturing, from produ- uh, producers, from distribution centres. But the quantities were too large for any one charity to manage. So now we've got three warehouses that can take large quantities of surplus food, store it, break it down into smaller quantities, and then distribute it out to charities. I mean, it's an incredible story, isn't it? I mean, yeah, really amazing. Sorry, young people sort of seizing on these things. That's something I, that's interesting to me, Fiona, is in your line of work, the profile, the age profile of the people in the clinic has changed in my time there. Mm. You know, what's behind that? Yeah, no, it's great. We have a young person's yeah. clinic. We're really aiming for anybody who will wants to come to the clinic. Mm. And, you know, we would absolutely encourage all younger people to come and have a screen yeah. and come and get tested. And I think things have changed. And do you think it's harder for older people? Um, yeah, that is sometimes is. We do see a huge number of patients, you know, from all age yeah. groups and so forth. I think the mix is um, is quite interesting in our waiting room, you know. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I always tell people about what the, you know, yeah. what the mix is because, you know, you've got the gays. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, the drug addicts or deal with addiction. And, and they're kind of chaotic in their own way. Totally. And of course, nowadays, you lots of, you know, um, ladies with their babies. And it is a really odd mix of people. It is, yeah. And you're sort of spending a couple of hours sitting on plastic chairs together which just makes for weird conversations. It does. Uh, and yeah. people come in to me and say, any chance you can hook me up with that guy? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, but it is interesting. Like, I, I, I suppose going back to your music, you know, sometimes people are there and, you know, they all sit there and don't talk and you, you almost yeah. feel there must be something that can generate a whole discourse or a yeah. discussion. Because well, there's always a weird tension because yeah. I'll be there and I'll see somebody that I recognise. And yeah. if it's somebody I know, that's different. But somebody I kind of vaguely recognise, the kind of person I might say hello to from, yeah. you know, in a gay bar or something. But there's that weird tension that, yeah. you know, does he want me to acknowledge the fact that he's here in the, yeah. you know, in the STI clinic? It's just... It is a weird situation. It is. I tend to just be, be really brazen and say hi yeah. to everybody because why the hell not? Oh, yeah, and sometimes I'd have a medical student in as sitting in, you know, training them and um, I'd say, okay, now loads of students come in here. You, you might know somebody. What yeah. are you going to do, you know? And <laughs> uh, so somebody come in and they're sort of horrified that there's somebody they, you know, socialise with. And, yeah. uh, you know, we have the, the likes of somebody who's, 
cheated on somebody and they come in and they say, oh, she's going to kill me. She's going, can I get out the window? You know, <laughs> but there is all this interpersonal relationships yeah. that go on all the time. And it's also part of the thing that you, it, it's, uh, you know, an area that you have to deal with this other stuff that other clinics don't have to. Yeah. Because there is this shame and weirdness about it. You know, people in, you know, in you know, getting their appendix out aren't worried about bumping into somebody in the no, corridor. You know, sure. but, yeah. but now you, um, your next project is about older people and sexuality. You've yeah. been commissioned, really, to do it. Yeah, I'm working with a company called Broken Talkers, and they're curating Bieltona, which is a festival which looks to kind of, you know, represent and make work that is for everybody, but also older people. Um, so because I was working on Rapids over the last two years, I'm still very much in that space where I'm interested in Ireland and sex and our own sex politics and stuff. But it's going to be about just Ireland and our change in attitudes towards sex and sexuality, but looking at older people, because they've obviously been through all of hmm. that change and they're at a point in their lives often where people kind of strip their sexuality away from them and so we're going to make a kind of docu-play again that's probably like bordering on a fiction but using testimony and lived experience as the core and um, just to kind of look at yeah. that and see what's happening yeah and of course you know technology of course plays a part here too because now it's the tinder generation and all that are, are older people online <laughs> I you have to ask the man in the audience want to let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Are you on Tinder? <laughs> it's, it's one of the great things I was just thinking about as you were saying, like often if we go into a multi-bed space, well, they're open enough, they have curtains, but people tend to kind of isolate themselves and yeah. we come in and we, you know, offer some music and play two or three tunes and we move down the corridor and often passing back you see and you'll see two sets of families are they're all talking to each other and mm. it kind of you know how it breaks down it's, it's it, we take it as kind of so fundamental but until it actually you know something breaks the ice and people get together so it's kind of like that which is yeah. pretty cool in a way you're using music to do the same thing that Ellie is doing with food yeah we started doing this thing recently Twinkle Twinkle is obviously one of the staples of our repertoire, but how many different nationalities to get their own version of Twinkle Twinkle? Oh, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. You them, Estonian, Japanese, yeah. African. It's a grace. It's, it's, yeah. you know, you know, um, so, Conleth, uh, you're going to play us out, in, in a sense, here. So tell us about the song that you're going to do. Uh, this is a song I wrote back in June. Pride in London got in touch with me and asked me to perform at the opening ceremony. And I thought, in Trafalgar oh, Square or something? Or? Uh, actually, it was at South Bank. Okay. And I thought, this is a great opportunity. But then all my songs were about breakups. I thought, <laughs> oh, God, oh, my, I can't get up and sing like a big Adele-style song. I need to write something really quickly. So um, I sat down and I wrote Proud in about 10 minutes. Mm. And you're, you have some accompaniment here. Yes, I have Declan McCurry, mm. which is great. So, so Proud. Let's hear this it. Is Proud. I'm proud of who I am I'm proud of what I see When I look in the mirror I see me I'm proud of what I say I'm proud of being me When I look in the mirror I feel free I don't care anymore 
what you think of me I don't care anymore No, no I got my liberty Cause I'm proud And I will sing it loud I don't care anymore No, no Cause I'm me I'm proud of what I do I'm proud of what you see Cause when I look in the mirror I see me And I'm proud of what I stand for I'm proud that you get me Cause when I look in the mirror, I feel free, oh, I feel free, and I don't care anymore what you think of, of me. I don't care anymore, no, no. I got my liberty Cause I'm proud And I will sing I will sing it loud I don't care anymore No, no Cause I, I am me Today, Pantasocracy. Um, so I'd just like to thank all of my uh, guests here: Isolde Ward, Elika Sumbe, uh, Sean Dunn, Fiona Mulcahy, Gronya, and David Hope, and of course Connors for seeing us out there at the end. Connors Kane. I'd like to thank everybody listening at home and our audience here today for being so lovely and um, attentive. And you can catch up on all previous episodes of Pantasocracy on pantasocracy.ie. Thank you very much. Thank you.